If you've got your Bible, go ahead and open to Acts chapter 8 as we dig back into Acts. We're continuing on through this sermon series called The Church on Mission. It is a study through the book of Acts. And, uh, but before we jump into to today's text, I just want to say a word about fathers. Um, you know, it's, it's kind of like a running joke among, at least among pastors, how we are prone to uh, just lift up and exalt the, the calling of motherhood and mothers on Mother's Day. And we just talk so many wonderful things about mothers. And then we get a Father's Day and we just kind of rake the dads over the coals and saying, you're not doing enough or you're not, do, you know, all this kind of stuff. So I don't want to do that. So here on Father's Day, I just want to encourage you, number one, if, I mean, if you're, if you're here today, you're in church. If you're listening, then, you know, you're doing the best you can. I know during these strange times. But listen, th- good job on that. that. That in itself is a wonderful thing, and it sets a, a certain trajectory. There's a great component to that in terms of uh, just uh, living by example. So good job on that. And I just want to say I don't want to discourage any dads. I want to encourage you. And, uh, and so let me just encourage you, being a dad has been one of the hardest things I've ever done. Um, it has driven me to my knees more than anything else, and yet I am uh, very thankful. And I think about um, today, you know, for, for many of you, it, it, for many of us, it may be a very challenging day. It can be challenging for different reasons. It could be that you didn't have a good dad, and so you just kind of have a lot of bitterness and resentment towards your father. Or maybe, maybe you had a great dad like me, uh, but now he's passed away, and so it can be very challenging and, uh, and so there could be a lot of reasons why today can be very challenging. Well, here's, here's a charge I want to give to dads before we jump into this text. And it's just this. Pray with your family. Because I do believe that that could be more formative and do more things in your home uh, than anything else. Pray with your your family. It seems so simple. It's not like I'm, I'm challenging you to, to memorize the book of Leviticus and then just give a Bible study on that every night. I'm just saying, pray. You can leave. I, I just have so many great memories of my dad at Route 1, Box 35A, New Broughton, Alabama, and getting next to my twin bed, and we would get down on our knees, and he would be right next to me, and we, we'd pray. And I want to tell you, that shaped and formed me in ways that I would have never dreamed during that time. I can't point back to exactly what he prayed, but just the fact that he was praying. You see, prayer in the home is formative. It teaches the importance of prayer and teaches how to pray, but it's also very comforting. I remember that as a child. Even Chris Stapleton recognizes that. If you hadn't listened to Chris Stapleton's song, uh, Daddy Doesn't Pray Anymore, you need to go listen to that. That's a, that's a great song. Uh, it's got a great hook on, in the end, but he, he, he points out in one of the uh, verses, he says, uh, even when things were bad, uh, Daddy would thank Jesus for everything that he had, a, a good wife and three children, and food upon our plates. And he said, everything just seemed right when he'd say grace. Now, I'm telling you, there is a certain comfort that is given, that is imparted to the rest of the family, especially the children, even when things are not like uh, good, when things are hard, even when things aren't right, everything seems right when daddy says grace. And so I just want to encourage you, say grace before meals, before bedtime, pray with your family. As it's, as it's been said, a family that prays together stays together. So uh, let's jump into the text. All right, we're going to see, of course, this comes Acts chapter 8, 
comes right after chapter 7. I know that you may want to write that down. That's very profound. And uh, I've, I've read a lot of theology books and, and I got there. So <laughs> Acts chapter 8 comes right after chapter 7. What, is, what do we see in chapter 7? It was the first martyr. What was his name? Stephen. Good job. And Stephen was a deacon. He was one of the first deacons. We see this in Acts chapter 6. And, and so he stands firm, he stands bold, and he's the first martyr. Of course, this guy named Saul is introduced to us at this point. And now we get to chapter 8. And what we're about to see is that the church scatters. Now what's interesting about that is the fact that this shouldn't surprise us because from the very beginning of the Acts, when Jesus, right before his ascension, when he speaks to the apostles and he's speaking to the church, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. In other words, you better scatter. If you're going to do what I'm calling you to do, if you're going to be who I've made you to be, you're going to be a scattering people. And from its inception, that's why we still go. It's because we are a scattering people. And so today we're going to talk about scattering. Now, what we see out of the gate is one unexpected cause of scattering. And it's persecution. It's very, very interesting that the very reason that the church scattered was because, not in spite of, but because of persecution. In fact, let's jump into the text. Verse 1 and following. And Saul approved of his execution. Again, that's Stephen's execution. He was one who oversaw that. He approved of it. And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem. And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria. Stop right there. Now go back to Acts 1.8. What did Jesus say? Be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. Up until this point, they hadn't scattered. Now they're scattering, and it says, they were scattered throughout the region, regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen, made great lamentation over him, but Saul was ravaging the church and entering house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. Now, there's at least two reasons why this is very significant. First of all, in terms of uh, the meaning of the scattering. You see, under the old covenant, the temple was the epicenter of worship. You wanted to worship? You needed to go to the temple. That was the supreme manifestation of the presence of God. And the temple was located in Jerusalem. But what the cross did, among many things, the, you know what the cross did? The cross delocalized worship. So no longer do you have to come and see, but now you can go and tell and you can worship God anywhere. And that's one of the major transitions from the old covenant to the new covenant because now it's not come and see, now it's go and tell. Now God's heart has always been after the nations, but now in, in, a, in a very crystal clear way, we are called to go to the nations, to be scattered throughout, to be salt and light and proclaim the gospel throughout. And so now the temple goes out because the temple is not brick and mortar. It's not a certain place. It's a people. It's the church. The church is now the temple of God. And so we're to go out. And the second reason why this scattering is so important and, and, uh, and very significant is the cause of this scattering. And that's my uh, point that I just made. The cause of this scattering is not in spite of the persecution, but because of it. Uh, it was persecution. 
So let's, let's dial that back a little bit. Let, let's think about this. There was a guy named Saul, and there were plenty of other Jews that were right, right along with him, but Saul was very significant right here because he was mentioned several times, and then we're gonna see his conversion in a couple chapters. But here's what we see right here. Saul wanted to thwart the plans of the church. He didn't like the church. They were saying, no way is this church a good thing. And it was because they were zealous for God. And he was saying, listen, we're willing to spill blood to stop the church. And they did. But what they did not do is stop the church. In fact, they played right into God's sovereign hand and plan. Now, let's, uh, let's dial this in. God will allow a Saul in your life not to take you off the path, but to keep you on the path that he has for you. Listen, there, I, oftentimes we pray, God, I want your will to be done. God, use me. God, I want to be uh, in line with your plan. I want to be on your path. And then something we don't like happens to us, and we're like, God, why didn't you answer my prayer? I wanted, you to, I wanted to be on your path. I wanted to be a part of your plan. And what we see right here is that oftentimes what we consider setbacks, the Lord uses to advance his eternal purposes in our lives. And we've got to remember that because that truth and that reality is what keeps us steadfast in the middle of circumstances going awry and plans going awry. Are you allowing God to use you in the storm? Now, that's one, um, one, one thing we didn't see. That's one unexpected cause of the scattering, persecution. But now we're gonna look, as we walk through this text, four vital components as the church scatters. And the first one is gospel proclamation. And this is the most foundational. Without this, the church is not really the church scattered. We, and by the way, uh, the, the church has always had a two-fold dynamic. We gather on the Lord's day, the Lord's people, and we scatter throughout the week and we're salt and light and we sprinkle gospel seeds everywhere we go. That's what we're called to do. And if you're not doing that, you're not doing what you're called to do, you're not being who you're called to be. So gospel proclamation, most foundational. In fact, let's read through the uh, verses four through 13 and watch and see how many times it talks about the preaching or the proclamation of God's word and the gospel. Look at verse four. Now, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. Philip, uh, Philip, by the way, is one of the deacons. So we've heard about Stephen. He was martyred. Now we're hearing about Philip. Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowd, with one accord, paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard him and saw the signs that he did. For unclean spirits, crying out with a loud voice, came out of many who had them, and many who were paralyzed or lame were healed. So there was much joy in that city. When the kingdom of God comes, really comes, and it's accepted in the, in the hearts of people, that you, you can, no matter what the circumstances are, you can bet you're gonna find joy. Because joy is just not rooted in circumstances. It's rooted in something more profound, more unshakable than circumstances, namely the kingdom of Christ. Verse nine. But there was a man named Simon who had previously practiced magic in the city and amazed people of Samaria, the people of Samaria, saying that he himself was somebody great. They all paid attention to him from the least of the 
to the greatest saying this man is the power of God that is called great and they paid attention to him because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic and they paid attention I'm sorry verse verse 12 uh, here we go Uh, but when they believed Philip as he preached good news about the kingdom of God and the name of Jesus Christ they were baptized both men and women even Simon himself believed And after being baptized, he continued with Philip. And seeing signs and great miracles performed, he was amazed. Now, let me, we saw a lot right there. Let me just kind of break this down. So as the kingdom of God went out with Philip, just as it was with Jesus, there was a lot of healing. There were were a lot of what we call compassion ministry or mercy ministry, uh, feeding the hungry, taking care of the poor uh, a lot of a lot of lame people healed and it was it was a beautiful wonderful thing and, and listen we we still try to do that through uh, whether it's through medicinal ways or through uh, even taking care of the poor feeding the hungry those kind of things we want to do that we must do that in fact a Christian that's not into that boy you have to go back and say do you really know Jesus who like came and he was a, and he spoke for the marginalized and he 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 loves the most vulnerable and and, and, he, and he serves Uh, the least of these and calls us to do the same but underneath all that the most foundational thing we must do is preach the gospel that's something that no other humanitarian effort will ever do that's given to the church gospel proclamation and the reason is because Romans 1 16 says the gospel is the power of God to salvation for those who believe in other words if you don't know the gospel you can't be saved and if you don't have the gospel preached, you, you'll never know the gospel. you never hear the gospel so you can believe the gospel. So gospel proclamation. Number two, second vital component as the church scatters is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. Look at verses 14 and following. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John who came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, a lot could be said right here, and I think we need to at least uh, point out a couple things. First of all, uh, Philip is not a rogue evangelist. And what we see right here is the, um, the authority of, the, uh, of a local church. So, in other words, Philip did not go out on his own saying, you know what, I'm just going to preach Jesus, I'm just going to love Jesus. And he was just kind of going out on his own, disconnected from the church. And so any ministry that is not at least connected in some way to a local church and not working to funnel people into a local church is missing it. He's missing it. We've got to be connected to the local church. So what does he do? You see the connection there. um, And then he he goes. He he says, hey, God's doing some amazing things in Samaria. He he tells Peter and John. Peter and John come over and uh, they lay hands on them. They show, uh, you know, the authority of the apostles, the authority of the church. Now, what what, what happens here is very unique in terms of redemption history. And one of the reasons is because it's a very unique time in redemption history. In other words, this is not normative to the church in all ages. What is it? What am I talking about? It's the Holy Spirit 
coming and indwelling these believers after they believe in Jesus and there being a gap of time between that. You see, what we see right here is the same thing we see when the Gentiles heard the gospel in Acts chapter 10 and 11, and that is they wanted to authenticate the, the, their faith that, hey guys, in other words, saying, hey guys, I want you all to know these are genuine believers and they are one with you in Christ. Jews, Samaritans, and then later on we'll see in 10 and 11, Gentiles. You see, the Holy Spirit plays, it's kind of like, he's, he's kind of like a shortstop. He plays a lot of roles. And one of the roles that he plays is uh, he, he authenticates true saving faith. We see this in Acts 2 when the apostles believed, the Holy Spirit came, and there was the manifestation of the Spirit. And we see this right here, manifestation of the Spirit when the apostles were right there. And that's a way of saying that, look, the, the gospel has, has made Jew and Samaritans into one new man. This is a, a beautiful, beautiful aspect of the church. And we'll talk about the implications of that in just a little bit. So the Holy Spirit accompanies salvation. And so if we're going to scatter as the church we must be empowered by the Holy Spirit and we must see that only through the power of the Holy Spirit can, um, can true proclamation and salvation happen. Number three, the uh, third vital component as the church scatters, the ministry of rebuke. Now let me just say, this is a ministry that we don't often think of when we think about the church. We can think about the ministry of service, the ministry of encouragement, the, the, ministry, uh, you know, the ministry of preaching, the ministry of singing. We can think of a, a whole host of ministries, but how often do you hear someone say, you know what I love about that church is their ministry of rebuke. They, they rebuked me last year and oh, I just love that church. I'm so, so drawn to it. We don't do that. We don't hear that. Why? Because nobody likes to be rebuked. And yet, that is one of God's means of grace in your life and in my life. And the humble, wise Christian, he embraces and welcomes rebuke. Let me ask you, how, how, how welcoming are you really to rebuke? If you're living in a way that's contrary to God's word and somebody calls you out on it, what's your first reaction? I mean, well, you know, what we often say is like, oh, I can't do it. I, I, I'm not judging. I, I can't judge. I mean, I've got flaws too. Listen, everybody's got flaws. And if we were to say we've got to be flawless to do rebuke, well, Jesus would be the only one who would do that. But what we see right here is Luke brings us back to Simon. Remember the magician who got saved? Or it looks like he got saved. He, was, he made a profession of faith. He got baptized. And now we see him, he's impressed by the Holy Spirit and all these powerful things the Holy Spirit's doing. And he says, hey, how much can, for, and you got, there's a little humor in here. He's like, how much money will it take to get the Holy Spirit? And Philip just rebukes him sternly. In fact, let's just, let's look at the text. Look at verses 18 and follow. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles, um, the apostles' hands, he offered them money saying, give me this power also so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, may your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part 
nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that, if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now, earlier in the passage, here's a man who practiced magic. He was a sorcerer. And, uh, and who knows the details of what that actually looked like. But he did that, and then he made a profession of faith. He, he supposedly trusted in Jesus. He was even baptized. And then you see him commit a gross sin. Was he, uh, you know, there's questions. Was he really genuinely converted, or, or was this a false conversion? What, what, do we, what do we make of this? Well, I'll tell you this. We don't know, because the text doesn't tell us. But here's what we do know. He made a profession of faith and then committed a gross sin. We also know that genuine Christians can make professions of faith, and they're genuinely converted, they're genuinely Christians, and they commit gross sin. We also know that uh, Jesus said you'll know them by their fruit and the fruit uh, is in the fruit and the root, the, the fruit of our lives is the evidence of where our root is. And, and so we've, we, we, we never should be at home in our sin, just kind of shrugging our shoulders to it. So what are we to make of this? Um, well, he, he, I think we, we are to really zo- zoom in on what we see um, um, uh, Philip not doing. Notice what he does not do. He does not do, well, you know what? I mean, you just got to be you. You got to do you. You got to, you know, I know you, I know you struggle, and he just kind of strokes his ego, and, but you're a good guy. You really are. You know, you, you'll get there. No. What does he do? He, in, in, a, in a real way, he kind of bows up at him, and he says, you're in sin. You need to repent. That seems harsh. You know what it is? It's loving. It's the most loving thing that we can do. True love is not mere sentimentality. It's it's not mushy-gushy. It has teeth. Love does something, and sometimes love does a hard work of saying, you know what, you're wrong here, and you need to repent. Let me ask you, how loving are you really? Do you love the people around you that are going astray? Do you love them enough to risk the awkwardness of, of confrontation? Do you see the ministry of rebuke that as God's people we're all called to? And then number four, so fourth vital, a vital component as the church gathers is, I'll say this phrase, unity in diversity. Unity in diversity. Look at verse 25. Now when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. Now let's go back to where this, uh, where we uh, started with this. So verses five and six. Philip, remember this is the same chapter. So Philip went down to the city of Samaria and proclaimed to them the Christ. And the crowds of one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip. All right. So to us, in our vernacular, the word Samaria may, it probably has no connotation is probably very neutral Samaria when you say Samaritan the connotation is usually pretty pretty good probably right Uh, we say what good Samaritan we'll say that a lot we're usually talking about 
uh, someone who did something good. We, we usually are talking about uh, gi- giving someone a compliment when we say that. Not so in this culture. Not so. In fact, do you, I remember back in the 90s, do y'all remember the word diss? Do y'all remember that? Where you're like, you diss somebody, and as, you know, when I was in middle school, we used to go back and forth, and like, we'd try to diss somebody, and like, we'd talk about like their shoes, and then they'd talk about like your, that shirt, and you just go back and forth, and it's usually lighthearted, but then if you wanted to like do a slam dunk and just kind of shut them down, then you, you know what the major, like all, the diss of all time was? Your mama. <laughs> That was like, oh, no, you didn't. You just went like, you, you, you just went too far right there. And so we'd say those kind of things. Here, it, in that day, the greatest diss, the greatest insult would be to call somebody a Samaritan in, in Jewish life. And they really would. I mean, uh, historians say, scholars say that, that, they would, that people would say that in a very real way to, to dismiss somebody. Oh, they're acting like a Samaritan. To insult somebody. You're acting like a Samaritan. It was very, very wrong. Why? Because they were half-breeds. Half-Gentile, half-Jew. They were despised by the Jewish community. They just looked upon these people with disgust. And yet what we see right here is the gospel breaking down ethnic and racial barriers. Now, this speaks to our cultural moment. This speaks to us. This speaks to me. This speaks to you right now. You know, we can say a lot of things about our cultural moment. And one of the hard things in navigating through through our time right now is we, and I know a lot of you don't even like to turn on the news anymore. You, you, you don't even like to look at Twitter feed because it's so discouraging. It's just always negative and there's so much. And one of the hard things about navigating our cultural moment is the confusion over terms. You have certain phrases, you have certain terms where you line up 10 people and it would mean something different to, to, everyone, to, to everyone. And so to the degree that, that terms actually help clarify, to that degree they're helpful, to the degree that they confuse, they're actually not helpful. And, and so you have to almost like say, okay, in a conversation, I say this and here's what I mean when I say this. Because if not, we're just shooting over everybody's heads and we're not using the same dictionary. And that's one of the struggles that we're having. It, it reminds us of the Tower of Babel. It reminds us that we live in a cursed world, even in terms of how hard it is to communicate using terms. But here's what we know for sure. Let me just state clearly with, with uh, uh, being tr- trying to be as crystal clear as I uh, absolutely can. We know without a doubt that the Bible teaches us, number one, that God loves all people of all races, no matter what the race is, and therefore we as God's people are to love all people of all races. Amen? So we know that with crystal clarity. And we also know this. Racism is a sin. 
Now, when I say racism, again, that's one of those terms that, uh, I mean, what, what are, you, are you talking about systemic racism? Or you're, what, what are you talking about? And depending on who you're talking about, there's, there, there are broad uh, definitions of racism. There's narrow. I would use right here, when I say this right now, I'm using it more um, uh, uh, in a more narrow fashion. There's, I think there needs to be just discussion over the broad uh, definition. But when I say racism, I'm talking about hating someone because of the color of their skin, because of their background or culture, and actually thinking that your race is better, even if it's implicit, thinking your race is better than somebody else's. Let me just say, racism, according to the Bible, is antithetical to the cross of Jesus Christ. And it's blasphemy against our creator God. And we know this because of Revelation 5. Look at this, Revelation 5, verse 9 and 10. And they sang a new song saying, worthy are you. Who's the you? That's Jesus, the Lamb of God. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe, every language, every people, every nation. And you have made them a kingdom. Not many kingdoms, not different kingdoms. Like we got the white kingdom over here and black kingdom over here and brown kingdom over here. You made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. So that's, we know that with crystal clarity. And I think we need to start there and then we work out and we tease out through discussion. Usually, it's a good discussion, by the way. It doesn't happen. Like profitable discussion, discussion that actually helps, it doesn't happen on social media. I'm just going to put that out there. You know where it happens? It happens over a dinner table. We were able to say, if somebody pushes back and say, I don't know if you heard me clearly. And then, did I hear you clearly? And there's some back and forth. It, it, that's how we're to talk to one another. And that's why we need to work on the local level. I'm a localist at heart. You know, what's going on in another city somewhere else is maybe not necessarily what's going on right here. And so oftentimes I think there's a lot of virtue signaling that we actually, we're actually not, the people that are saying things aren't dealing with people right down the road with them. And so as, as the Church of Jesus Christ and as First Baptist Enterprise, a local church, we need to like ferociously work locally to display the character of Christ in the way that we love all people and especially in the way that we love one another. So, where do, we, where do we land with this? I know this is heavy stuff. Where do we land? We'll just go back to the fact that we're called to scatter. You and I. We're gathered right now. We are called to scatter and to be salt and light in a dark and depraved world. And you know what? The world needs the light of Jesus Christ shining through every one of us as we scatter. And so just to recap, one unexpected cause of scattering in the early church was persecution. Four vital components as the church scatters. It's the gospel proclamation, the Holy Spirit, ministry of rebuke, and unity in diversity. Being diverse, but unified under the banner that Jesus Christ is Lord. And in that way, we will continue to make disciples of all nations and glorify the name of Christ in all the earth. Father, we pray as we close this text that you've given us today, your, your holy word, we pray that we would align our hearts accordingly 
as we are not conformed to this world, but rather are transformed by the renewal of our minds, corporately and individually. We pray this in the powerful name of Jesus. Amen.